UX Podcast Episode 155. In order to be a designer at all, you are sympathetic. You do know. Just because you're a good engineer doesn't mean you're going to create a good product. But if you want to create a good product and if you want to take responsibility for a good product, then you need to have some more awareness of the people around you in the work you do. We're your hosts, James Roy Lawson and Pat Axbom. And this is UX Podcast, coming to you from Sweden, Stockholm, Sweden, with listeners in 167 countries from Tanzania to Taiwan. Nice. Uh, do you like how I mentioned Tanzania? I love one, that, because I didn't even know like we had country. listeners in Tanzania. And There I, aren't many. I, there aren't many, I can tell you. But, but like. I've lived in Dar es Salaam, so shout out to those listeners specifically. Uh, today, we're talking to... None other than Alan Cooper, father of Visual Basic, founder of Cooper, author of About Faced, Inmates Around the Asylum, and so on. He's also speaking at From Business to Buttons here in Stockholm on April 27. And uh, I would mention our UX podcast coupon code, but that event actually is sold out. So, you know, make sure you subscribe to UX podcast and hear our chats with some of the speakers that we will be recording on the day. It's also time, before we talk to Alan for us to talk about and mention our 2017 listener survey, which you can find at uxpodcast.com slash survey. It's only going to take you a couple of minutes, um, but it's quite a big help for us to learn a little bit about, well, what we're doing right and what we can do better. So go to uxpodcast.com slash survey. Well, the thing is, I mean, uh, it's been a year. And we, uh, I know you were really nervous about the talk when you were about to give it uh, last year, and it went really well. And then you, since then, you've given the talk uh, across the world in lots at lots of different conferences. So, s- sort of wondering what, how has this past year gone for you? How how has it perhaps changed you, and how you look upon how designers are tackling this uh, idea of ethics in design? I have indeed given the talk multiple times. It's been very uh, happily received uh, at each time. And so what I'm realizing is that the world of design is is hungry for an encouragement. And also, I think guidance. Guidance, I think, is harder than encouragement because the, the problem of, of ethics is such a hairball of trouble. Um, and you can see in the political situation around the world that democracy is deteriorating. The mechanisms of its deterioration are, in many ways, tools that we technical practitioners have created. You know, we're, we're all building this cool stuff that makes money for our companies. Mm. But then we realize that by making all this money for our companies, we're exacerbating inequality and gross inequality is phrase at the fabric of democracy. I mean, there are people out there who are writing software for imprisoning people. It's the the bulk of the problem is that the evils in our world today are not proximate to the mechanisms that support the evils of the world. The stormtroopers, you know, who abuse people are just following orders. And the the authority figures that they're following are just following orders. And it's it's several removes before you find the work that we do. I used to say, oh, I'm not interested in politics. And, and frankly, I'm not. I'm not interested in politics. I'm not interested in taking out the garbage. But if you don't take out the garbage, then your living situation turns to shit. 
Mm-hmm. So you have to take out the garbage. And so you, you have to be committed to politics. So I, I don't know if we're, I mean, I don't know if we're across the board really, really good at it. I mean, it varies a lot from country to country. But, but you're right in the sense that it, it's like an engine, isn't it? You've got, to, you've got to put oil in at some point. I mean, if you don't put the oil in, eventually it kind of gnaws itself to death and seizes up. And that's kind of the same thing with, with democracy. And the thing about it is that one is that, I mean, while democracy is a mechanism for delegation, at a certain level, everybody has to participate. You, you can't delegate your delegation. You, and so, so it really is a, a kind of a, a, a populist low-level thing that you have, to, you have to take an interest in who's running and you have to support your candidates and you have to be an activist at a local level. The other thing is that I continually look at the problems in our world. I set out to make a list the other day of the problems in our world. I mean, I'm talking about major problems, you know, like oppression of other colored people, you know. And, and I, you know, like after a couple of pages, you go, oh, shit. And the thing is, is that each one of them has its own solution, None of the solutions are effective because all of the solutions are undermined, are short-circuited by inequality. Mm. Namely, in the United States has for-profit prisons, and so it turns out that we love the war on drugs. The war on drugs is the most horrendous and awful thing that mankind has ever created. And, but it makes a lot of money for people. And things like like for-profit prisons is is one of those mechanisms of making money. So so you can't attack for-profit prisons and say, oh, we don't want those. We want the government to run the prisons. Even if you could create, somehow build grassroots interest in, in, in politically putting leverage on people to change that, individuals and corporations with vast economic resources, just step in and buy politicians and change the, they just short circuit any work that the grassroots uh, efforts can accomplish. And, and that's the problem is, is, is there's this sort of like this universal solvent that's dissolving democracy. And what it is, is it's individuals and companies with outrageously large bank accounts. It, it, it's, it, it comes down to this business of, will you write shitty software if I pay you twice what that guy pays? You know, well, you, people kind of go, well, yeah, I'll do that because I'm not really hurting anybody and I'm a decent person. You know, you can self-justify. Then you say, well, I'll pay you four times that if you'll put algorithms in here that don't tell people that we're lying and cheating and stealing. And you say, well, you know, geez, I'm getting all this money. And it's like, OK, for this much money, will you kill that person? I guess it's also the same thing with it when we uh, or similar thing where you know you you join a a, um, a software development or you join a team and they're already producing something or there's, a, there's someone else has made the backlog. I mean, you know, I'm just saying, oh well, I'm just designing the interface. I didn't decide we we're going to do it, or I'm just coding it. I didn't decide we we're going to do it. Mm. Um, and I think was it Mike Monterio that, that wrote the other week about how you know your your neighbour doing something isn't a good excuse, right? And this is. This is part of the responsibilities of representative democracy is you you have to take individual action and you have to be doing it constantly. You don't have to do it really hard, 
you don't have to be a, an activist out on the out on the protest lines necessarily, but you need to educate yourself, you need to vote, and you need to be communicating with your local representatives. I, I mean, if, I, what I'm realizing is that if you're not emailing or calling your congressional representatives at least once a month, you're falling behind. You're, you're not participating. And, you know, sure, there are people who call every day and, and I want to call every day, but I don't. But I, I remind myself when some horrendous thing is, is happening, I go, okay, it's time to make a telephone call, get my voice on record. And, uh, and what I'm realizing is that, is that there are more opportunities to, to interact with, with politics at the community level because it, it works out. It's one of the mechanisms that was used by the um, by the right wing in the United States is is a couple of their touch points were one of the significant levers of changing of moving America to the right was the notion of uh, Christian fundamentalists did not want um, the theory of evolution taught in public schools. So they began to organize at the neighborhood level, at the grassroots level, and and found that they were very effective. I mean, what they could do is they could get fundamentalist Christians united around this issue of, of getting creationism into textbooks in Texas was where this happened. And, um, and they made an enormous amount of headway. Everybody on the conservative side looked at this and said, holy shit, what a powerful lever. Let's do this. Let's do this with all of our issues. And they began to really work at the grassroots level. And all the progressives on the left said, that's fucking stupid, you know, because they were looking at creationism and saying that's fucking stupid. Well, creationism may be fucking stupid. So are we saying that the designers are, are like the grassroots in the UX realm, in the UX industry? Because what I'm thinking is that everybody seems to be coming more and more aware of the ethics uh, side of things in design. And the UXers are very well suited to, to take on this role of educating others. But one of the huge problems seems to be that we're aware of it, but we're not really doing anything. Well, we can do something, but we need to convince others because the others are working for profit, like you're saying. They're working for with other goals in mind. Uh, and as long as they're working for profit, then things are going to break. So, I mean, our our issue then is how do we convince others not only that ethics is something that we should care about, but actually that we need to also pursue and consciously pursue that moral path in business? You can't sell somebody something if they don't want to buy it. All you can do is you can say, look, I've got this wonderful little eraser here. It has great capabilities, great features. It's really good. Okay, if you don't need an eraser, you're not interested. But if you're interested in erasers, tell me more. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and so that's all you can do is, is you can inform people. So there's a significant issue, which is there's all this misinformation. And we are the creators of the channels of misinformation. Hmm. So all of a sudden, I mean, the thing is, is that there are a bunch of people on, on Twitter who are saying, hey, Jack, do something about the trolls and the garbage tweeters. And Jack is going, oh, no, I can't. Well, yes, you can. 
not enough people are saying, hey, Jack, do something about the trolls and the doxers and the attackers, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a matter of saying you need to you need to assert your desires uh, at every level with everybody. The other thing I think that's significant is that the middle class is just shriveling up and dying off. And the only middle class that exists is the digital practitioners of the world. We're it. We're the remains of the middle class. And the middle class is the, is the class that has discretionary time and discretionary funds. I mean, people who are not in the middle class, who are in the, in the ever-growing lower classes, they, they have to work two jobs to, to stay afloat. Especially in in the U.S., there's 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 in, incredible pride in being self-sufficient, and when self-sufficiency doesn't work anymore, then you get into this it's kind of this self-destructive loop, and that's why what you see is 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 uh, heroin addiction and oxycontin addiction are are, are ep- epidemic in the United States. That's because that we continually cleave, we cling to this notion that it's about your initiative and your hard work and your dedication and, 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 the, and the, the myth of the meritocracy. That sounds like there's a huge weight on our shoulders as, as digital designers, actually. I was, I was going to ask, I was, I was going to ask, Alan, you know, in the last year, because one of the, when we talked to you last time, you were saying that one of the reasons, the main reasons what you, you'd kind of um, decide to step back into the limelight and, and do the, the ranch stories talk was, was how um, you couldn't, You'd stepped back from Cooper for five years, but you felt like you you couldn't let go of the visionary side of it. That that you needed to be the kind of the big poncho at the top of Cooper doing the visionary thing. I just wondered how how was Cooper, or even people that have listened to the talk, how how have people at Cooper um, taken um, the 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 call to arms, the 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 visionary message that you've been spreading with Ranch Stories this last year? Well, I, I they really like it and. They just did a thing. I didn't even know about this. Nobody tells me. I don't pay attention. I guess I'm I'm out here on the ranch, <laughs> disconnected. But um, but about eight or ten Cooperistas showed up at uh, at Glide Memorial Church the other day, which is well known in the San Francisco Bay Area for their their uh, taking care of homeless and and poor people, and uh, and they just spent the day cooking and feeding people. That's local activism, and, and, they, and they love it, and they're proud of it, and I love it, and I'm proud of it, too. I think there are two things we have to do. Is, is One is that personal thing. You do that because it makes you feel good. But the other one is we have to fundamentally change the system. I mean, America has, is building this machine for, for punishing people for uh, having created an incredibly productive society, so productive that there are no jobs anymore. And I mean, I remember as a kid reading science fiction, and it was this 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 utopian future where machines did all the work, and all we got to do was sit around and think lofty thoughts. In many ways, we're we're creating that world where we have those machines doing all of our work for us. Yeah. And the problem is, is that none of the benefits of that are accruing to the masses of people. And, and this is a tragic failure of our economic and political systems. 
So, so it, it seems like there is some light at the end of the tunnel with, with, with us even discussing these problems and these issues. Uh, and I mean, yes, we are then the middle. I like that analogy that we're the middle class. Uh, and I see that, y yes, people will buy what they need. But I also see UXers becoming experts uh, on the sort of dark side of the UX, uh, becoming experts in uh, behavioral psychology and using that to their advantage of convincing people to do stuff that maybe they don't need or don't even want to do if they had time to consider it. Uh, but it seems like we ha we're at a, like a fork in the road and we can choose to go that path where we actually take the money, take that f f four times as much as I'm making today and, and convince people to do stuff they don't want to. Or I can go the path where I go out and help people and, and help the real people. Uh, but I'm not sure everybody's aware of that fork in the road and that they have, because there are books written now about how to convince people to buy stuff online using behavioral psychology. And designers, they just show these at events as this is what you need to do. And this is scaring me. Why are we doing yeah. this? Well, we set up a toxic system in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley not being a place, but a state of mind. And what we did is we created this venture capital model. And the thing about venture capitalists is there's only one requirement to be a venture capitalist. And that is you have to have a lot of money. And so what we've done is we've, and venture capitalists control innovation in Silicon Valley. So we don't build programs that are good for humanity. We build programs that make more money for venture capitalists. And we don't even build programs that make money for venture capitalists. We build programs that make money for venture capitalists right now. I was a ridiculously naive in the mid 70s when I started my first software company. My number one goal was to make really great products. I, I saw this opportunity. Wow, I didn't have to be a cog in a machine in some giant corporation writing COBOL programs. You know, Instead, I could create software that was actually really unique and cool and innovative and, and that did things for people and empowered people. It's about helping people, helping people realize what impact uh, they're having. I mean, evaluating the outcome and not just the, the, the profit and having other performance indicators. This is actually related now to one of my, my uh, heptascale questions. Uh, we've started doing this on UX Podcast that we end uh, our interviews with heptascale questions. And I'm going to briefly describe what that is. It's a, it's, uh, we each, uh, James and I, ask a question uh, that we ask you to rate on a scale of one to seven. Uh, and it, it will be obvious how to rate it based on how we pose the question. But the thing is, you're not allowed to answer with anything other than a number. On a scale of one to seven, how aware are business leaders today of what emotional impact their products and services are having on people? Three. Hmm. Well, three, three is oh. an average. <laughs> three is an average. So, so what you've got is a few sevens and lots of ones. Um, on a scale of one to seven, how much should designers know about code? Three. <laughs> oh, you see, you know, I thought you'd go straight in there on that one. I didn't think you'd think that long. Oh, that was interesting. I love that pause. <laughs> There's a lot 
in a word there. You know, it's it's know about code is very different from code or being able to code. There's all this wanking on Twitter about how oh designers need to they need to code so that they can be sympathetic to the needs of the programmer. To which I say, who fucking died and said programmers need to have all their coworkers be so sympathetic to their needs? Why isn't it the programmers who need to be sympathetic to the designers? Mm. Why is it that the programmers have to be sympathetic to the accounting department? <laughs> Why aren't we more sympathetic to the user community? And, and does that mean that if you want to be sympathetic to the user community, you have to go out and do the user community's job? No, we're very, very good at ethnographic research. And I don't know how to do thoracic surgery, and yet we routinely send teams out to observe and interview thoracic surgeons so we know what the issues are with their job. So when we're designing software for them, it serves their needs. Okay, so you need to know what's important about it and what effects it has. Does that mean you have to stick scalpels into people's chests? No. Do you need to know how to, you know, how to tie up arteries and veins? No. What you need to know is things like, if you can't tie up arteries and veins at this pace, your surgeries take too long and more of your patients die. Hmm. That's what you need to know. Okay, so you need to know the equivalent in terms of software. And one of the most important things you need to know about programmers is when are they lying? And the answer is when their lips are moving, okay? Because programmers are going, oh, this is hard. I can't do it. It's bullshit. It's software. You can do it. I don't care what it is. It's software. You can do it. The thing is, is that, is that the issues about code are you have a library of pre-written routines. That's a, a stack that started in 1965. Okay, and the stuff that you're doing at the top is really, really simple. Okay, because you're you're standing on the shoulders of all those giants who came before you. And the other one is you're inventing a new idiom, brand new, and you have to start coding it. And you have to go down to the lowest level, and you have to start worrying about security issues. You have to start worrying about interaction and concurrency problems and stuff like that. Well, guess what? Programmers go. That's hard. That's going to take a long time. It's fraught. It's risky. I'm not going to do it. And so they sit there and they tell designers what can and can't be done based on what's expensive and what's cheap. And what I want is I'm not an idiot and I'm not immune to the ideas that you shouldn't do what's expensive unless it's worth doing. OK, but let's not have the discussion about whether you need to be sensitive to my needs or whether you need to be able to assess whether something is cheap or expensive. And, and, and then whether it's worth it or not. Okay, that's a much more meaningful conversation. So I think this whole code thing is a giant red herring. It's just not the point. The point is, what do we need to know in order to work effectively? Because designers, developers, and people who deploy software are all part of a team. And they all need to support each other and they need to be sympathetic to the other one's needs. But sympathy, not empathy, but sympathy and support is what we need. And you don't need to know how to code to do that. 
You know, mm. I don't need to know about the shit you worry about. I just need to respect the fact and trust the fact that the shit you're worrying about, you'll share with me in a realistic and honest way and not tell me what's hard, but tell me what's expensive mm. because that's a much more rational and useful way. Mm. So thank you. That's a, I, I, that's a, that's a good question because th there's so much there's so many bits wasted on that shit <laughs> i know that i know that me and pair over the years have both said that uxers should have awareness about coding because mm. we see it as a you know from from our lives you know a couple of decades of of, of doing this stuff that you know you it enables communication you you have better communication with some of these people you know between the team if you have some some understanding of what's going on in their world um but but whether you should like you say whether you should actually know how to get down in there and properly code yeah the constituency that has an ignorance problem is the development community about how designers work the designer community does not have a problem of ignorance of how programmers work and the thing is is that is that one of the things that programmers need to learn is they need to learn when designers are charlatans because there are a lot of people out there who are hiring designers who aren't designers to do design work for, for every one bogus designer, you know, there's a thousand genuine ones and developers are, are crying and say, Oh, they need to be sympathetic to my needs here in order to be good designers. Well, in order to be a designer at all and not a bogus designer, you are sympathetic. You do know just because you're a good engineer, doesn't mean you're going to create a good product. And if you want to create a good product, and if you want to take responsibility for a good product, then you need to have some more awareness of the people around you who are supporting you in the work you do. The very important, very valuable, critically difficult, challenging, important work that you do. I'm not for a second denigrating that. God knows I spent 15 years as a software developer and, and probably shipped more code than most guys who are, who are making this mm. claim have ever coded at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Alan, you did not do a great job of just answering with a number there, but uh, that, was a, that was a fantastic rant, so thank you for that. Uh, but next time uh, we interview you, I'm going to say we're going to come over to Monkey Ranch and sit in your barn. That would be awesome next year. I would be personally delighted to have you guys come <laughs> to Monkey Ranch and sit in the barn. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Thanks very much, Alan. Yeah. You're welcome. Are you going to book your tickets to, to Monkey Ranch then, Pat? I'm going to start checking uh, what flights are available. Yeah, <laughs> book your Norwegian tickets. No, I, I, I think we should do that. We should start planning now for a, for a UX podcast special um, uh, coming to you from Monkey Ranch. Oh, that'd be awesome. Cooper's Monkey Ranch. It would be absolutely <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and watch them do some woodwork too. Yeah, we can all get little book gifts as um, presents will be there. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if there's going to be any links for this show. There might be some. We'll see. Definitely the links mm -hmm. to the um, the original interview we did with Alan um, a year ago, episodes 130 and 131. Ah, okay. Um, that will be in the notes. Um, and all those episodes, previous episodes, can be found at uxpodcast.com. Um, I'm Beantin on Twitter, B-E-A-N-T-I-N. -E and he's Axbom, A-X-B-O-M. And together we're UX Podcast, all one word. You can find us anywhere you'd like. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And as a thank you, please recommend us, recommend UX Podcast to a colleague. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.
Knock, knock. Who's there? Cows go. Cows go who? No, silly. Cows go moo. Oh. <laughs> no, I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing at that one. <laughs> oh.